Hello and welcome to episode 12 of True Crime Time. I think that I said that last episode was 12, um, but that was a lie. This is actually episode 12, and to avoid further confusion, because clearly I can't keep track of my own crap, all the episodes will be numbered when posted. That's more for my benefit than yours. But hi, hello. It's been a little bit. Um, So much is happening right now. I am moving in about a month. Banks... You know him as my loud cat in the background. Um, He has a really bad eye infection right now, so that's kind of a drag. Um, So I hope you can all forgive me for being a little sporadic. Um, I just want to say quick congratulations to our raffle winner, Carol. She won a copy of I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara and a fun true crime mug. Um, Definitely going to do more raffles in the future, so keep your eyes out for that. Who doesn't love free true crime stuff? I know I do. Uh, Let's get into it, shall we? There's a reason that you all are here, and it's not to hear me babble, but I mean, it kind of is, Um, but I digress. So see you on the other side of this super quick, entertaining commercial. Well, hello. I didn't see you there. Basically, that's true, because I can't see any of you, and you can't see me, which is really for the best, I'm sure. Uh, So let's do this. Monday, June 28th, 1993. 34-year-old Joel Rifkin got into his Mazda pickup truck, the kind with the weird roof cap add-on thingy over the bed of the truck. Uh, My sister used to tell me that people kept bodies in there, but let's put that personal fun fact to the side for now. Joel is driving on the Southern State Parkway on Long Island, that's New York where I live, for the new kids. He is headed towards Republic Airport, which is located in the Melville Farmingdale area. Two state troopers, whose names I'm afraid I'm about to pronounce terribly wrong, Deborah Spargerin, Spargerin? let's go with that, and Sean Bruin, Sean Ruan. Sorry, guys. Props to you. So Joel's truck roll on by and noticed that there was no rear license plate. They attempted to pull him over, only he did not stop. According to this article I read on ThoughtCo, the troopers then used their sirens and their loudspeaker, uh, and still Joel did not stop. The troopers, or officers, am I allowed to call them that if they're troopers? Not sure. Um, had just requested backup when Joel tried to correct a missed turn and crashed right into a utility pole. According to Newsday, that's right, locals, Newsday is one of my sources, the high-speed chase Joel had led the officers slash troopers on covered about 20 miles and ended up in Mineola. But you guys, Joel was fine. Thank God. He got out of the truck, he was unharmed, and was quickly placed in handcuffs the end imagine this was just a story about a traffic ticket it's not don't worry so the troopers are out checking out the scene um they notice a smell coming from the truck you guys know where this is going so those truck caps that my sister told me people hid bodies in probably to scare me but probably because she really thought it and maybe still does right now to this very day turns out there was a tarp in the back under that cap um the officers took a peek 
and could see part of a hand and a head. There was a body in the truck. Uh, The body and the bed of the truck belonged to 22-year-old sex worker and dancer Tiffany Bresciani, who is also the girlfriend of Dave Rubenstein, or Steen, who is also known as Dave Insurgent from the 80s punk band Reagan Youth. So this next part, not sure of the location, um, like, was this questions they were just asking him in the cop car, or had they taken him to the station at this point? I'm not really sure. Um, I read that after the body was found and he was questioned, he said very casually, um, did I lose my place here? I'm so sorry. He said, um, casually that Tiffany was a prostitute. That's his word, not mine. Um, that he had paid to have sex with and then things went bad, which is a term he used a lot when referring to murder. And I mean, yeah, that's not great, man. So things got bad or go bad and he killed her. He was headed to the airport to dispose of her body. Um, he then asked the troopers if he needed a lawyer. I would say that's probably a good idea. So Rifkin was taken to police headquarters in Hempstead and after a relatively short period of, of questioning, um, he started to kind of give out the details. The body that they had found in his truck, not the first, not the second, not the fifth, or even the tenth. Tiffany was number 17. She would be his last victim. So let's go back and start at the beginning. Joel David Rifkin was born on January 20th, 1959 to two unmarried and unwed college students. He was adopted three weeks after his birth by Bernard and Jean Rifkin. Three years later, um, they adopted a little girl whose name was Jan. They moved to East Meadow, Long Island. Don't ask me from where. Apparently, from an early age, Joel did not fit in at school. He became a target for bullies. Nobody wanted to play with him. He was picked last for sports or excluded completely. That kind of thing. So, according to that ThoughtCo article I mentioned uh, before, this was in part due to his, quote, sloping posture and slow gait, end quote. And despite having a higher than average IQ, he had undiagnosed dyslexia, which caused him, at least in part, to struggle in school. So he was just having a bad time all around. This continued into his teens. He tried really hard to fit in and was just rejected and tormented and excluded. He tried to join track. Everyone was mean and sucked. He joined the yearbook staff. His camera got stolen. People just bullied him. They threw things at him. They embarrassed him in front of others. Um, Just overall shitty things. He understandably felt rejected. And these are the things that I feel like make Joel kind of a stereotypical serial killer. He is the one that people expect. He's the outcast, the nerd, the socially awkward. Not like a Ted Bundy who was semi-successful, charming, and by some standards, good-looking, which is not my personal opinion, as I've stated in past episodes. Um, so Joel withdrew. Alone in his bedroom, he created his own kind of fantasy world. He was interested in true crime. He read books upon books about serial killers and murder. He also saw the Alfred Hitchcock movie Frenzy, and is said in interviews that he believes that's where his fantasies about strangling women began. He was super fixated on this movie and just found the idea really thrilling. And honestly, 
We can't blame the movie for that. I know some people blame entertainment for sparking violent behavior in people, but there has to be something inherently wrong in you already for you to start having dark fantasies like that, especially at such a young age, a la Jeffrey Dahmer. At this point in his life, his fantasies were clear and repetitive. Sadism, rape, murder. Joel started to look forward to college. Um, He hoped he could have a new start, make new friends, that sort of thing. He enrolled um, at, oh, I just said a weird word, okay, Nassau Community College, but did not live on campus. He still lived with his parents. What I read was that he didn't live on campus with other students, um, but I'm pretty sure there was no housing for community colleges over here. It was obviously a long time ago, so maybe there used to be. Um, not sure. Anyway, Joel remained an outsider and did not become the social butterfly he had hoped he would become. He confessed in an interview that by college age, that while just feeling behind, he especially felt like he was lacking any kind of sexual experience, and he thought maybe this would help him fit in if he if he got some. Um, but because he was such a stone-cold weirdo, girls wouldn't pay attention to him. And that is straight up conjecture because I'm sure his lack of confidence, you know, really worked against him by that point. So anybody who would be interested was probably driven away by his sad Moby loner bit. Um, He wouldn't even make eye contact with girls. So what did he do? He started driving around areas where he knew that sex workers were prominent. Um, And just FYI, I will be using that term Um, and not prostitute from here on out. It's a problematic word that has ties to really like the dehumanization of women who do that for work. Um, But that's a story for another time. So Joel finds the courage to actually pick up a sex worker and pay her. Um, This was a huge ego boost for him. There was, you know, that fear that he had of rejection, rejection uh, was gone. As long as you had the money, you were good to go. This new life absolutely consumed him. He would miss class, work, whatever. He spent whatever money he could on sex workers. That was his world. He had, you know, such a a self-esteem boost from human interaction and people actually being nice to him, even though, um, you know, they were being paid. And how sad that he felt like he needed to do that to come out of his shell and to have relationships. Um, So at this point, Joel drops out of college. Surprise! He enrolls in another, drops out again. He moved in and out um, of his parents' house during this time. This pissed off his dad, who wanted him to get serious about his education. Um, Sadly, in 1986, Joel's dad, Ben, was diagnosed with cancer. And even more sadly, he committed suicide a year later. Joel loved his father, but felt like he was a miserable disappointment and embarrassment to him. His father's untimely passing was the catalyst for Joel to pursue his fantasy life even more. His father was no longer around for him to disappoint, so he started wilding out, as the kids say. Um, In 1989, Joel was um, spending basically all of his free time with sex workers. He dropped out of college for the last time, and his fantasies about murdering women were about to hit the next level. In March of that year, with his mother and sister on vacation, Joel picked up a sex worker, as he did fairly often, and brought her back to his house. 
she was pretty sleepy, um, probably from all the heroin she was doing while she was there. And this allegedly irritated Joel. He wasn't into drugs and she was kind of being a drag. Um, without any warning, he picked up a howitzer artillery shell, which I had to Google, um, because I did not know what that was. It's essentially a giant sized bullet looking object, but it's one that's so large it can be fired out of a cannon or a tank, um, and just decided to bludgeon her with that. He then suffocated and strangled her to death, and then, only after he was sure she was dead, he went to sleep. How do you just go to sleep after that? I don't know. But when he woke up, he decided, hmm, probably should get rid of this body, and went about dismembering her. Um, There are graphic details available, but I'm not going to give them here. What is relevant is that he removed her teeth, and as I mentioned, dismembered her. So her head was found at a later time in a paint bucket on a New Jersey golf course, but because DNA testing was the worst in the 80s, they couldn't make an identification, um, especially because her teeth were missing, so no dental, um, obviously. Joel saw on the news that the head was discovered and panicked, but I mean, if you leave it on a golf course, it's probably going to be found soon. So that was just poor planning on his part. Um, But he decided in that moment he would never kill anyone again. The good news in the bad news is that in 2013, that victim was identified as Heidi Balk. Um, So at least some closure for her family. I mean, as much closure as one can get in that situation anyway, because that is just terrible. Um, In 1990, Joel was still living at home. His mother and sister went off on vacation. And what did Joel do then? He picked up a sex worker named Julia Blackbird and brought her to the house. The next morning, he went to the ATM to get money to pay her. Some reports say they went together, but that's not especially significant. Um, He discovered he had zero balance in his account. So he returned to the house, or they did. um, And he proceeded to beat Julia with a table leg and then strangled her to death. Again, he dismembered the body, put different parts into buckets, and drove them into New York City to dispose of them in the Brooklyn Canal and the East River. Unfortunately, her remains were never found. Uh, After murdering for the second time, Joel clearly had broken his promise of no more killing to himself, but decided that dismembering the bodies was far too unpleasant and not for him. Poor Joel, right? That's the line? Okay. At this time, Joel was working as the boss of his own landscaping company. He rented a storage unit for his equipment and also occasionally used it for body storage. But in 1991, he had to give up his body storage facility because his company failed and he was in debt. He got some part-time jobs here and there, but they kept getting in the way of his one true passion, murder. And so he lost all of those jobs too. But as time went by, things escalated, as they do in these kinds of situations. I'm going to touch on each victim, um, just briefly, just to give an idea of what the timeline was like, um, and so on. So, we just talked about the first two victims. Their third victim um, was Barbara Jacobs. She was 31. 
She was killed in July of 1991. Her body was found in the Hudson River. Her body had been placed inside a plastic bag, which had then been placed inside a cardboard box. Mary Ellen DeLuca, 22, was killed in September of 1991. She allegedly was killed because she complained about having sex after uh, Joel bought her crack. So that's kind of, you know. Uh, Yun Lee, age 31, was also killed in September of 1991. She was strangled and her body put in the East River. Uh, Jane Doe, number one, was killed in December. Um, She was strangled and her body placed in an oil drum that was then dumped into the East River. Lorraine Orvideo, I hope I said that right, 28, was strangled. Her body was also placed in an oil drum that was then put into the Coney Island River, where it was eventually discovered months later. Mary Ann Holloman, 39, was killed in January of 1992. She was found the next July in an oil drum at Coney Island Creek. Iris Sanchez, 25, she was killed in May. Her body was placed under an old mattress in a dump near JFK. Oof. Anna Lopez, 33, was strangled in May of 92, and her body left along I-84. Jane Doe, number two, we aren't sure exactly when she was murdered, but parts of her were found in an oil drum in May of 92 in Brooklyn, New York, um, by Newton Creek. Violet O'Neill, 21, in June of 92, Um, She was killed in Joel's house. She was dismembered and wrapped in plastic. She was left in parts, which is awful, in rivers and canals in the city. That's New York City, as a reminder. Um, Her torso was found floating in the Hudson River, and then a suitcase was discovered, which contained other parts of her body. Mary Catherine Williams, 31, was also killed at Joel's home in October 92. Her remains were found in Yorktown, New York, the following September. Jenny Soto, 23, was strangled in November of 92. Her body was found in Harlem River in the city. Leah Evans, 28, was killed in February 93. She was buried in the woods on Long Island. Lauren Marquez, 28, was killed in April of 93. Her body was left in the Pine Barrens, that's out east on Long Island. And interestingly, that is also where dismembered... um, remains, I guess I'll say, of one of the Long Island serial killers victims were found. So we'll put that aside for later. Um, and lastly, Tiffany Bresciani, 22, who I mentioned at the beginning, um, she was the one who Joel was caught with, um, which ended his murder spree, I suppose. Um, she was strangled and left in the garage of Joel's house for three days before the ride that got him caught. That's, that's pretty heavy, guys. Sorry. All of these women's lives were just taken away from them. For what? For what? How do we justify that? So let's bring it back to right after when he was caught. Clearly, the police went and searched his mother's house, specifically his bedroom. They found, in no particular order, women's jewelry, women's driver's licenses, women's underwear, pres- uh, prescription bottles um, prescribed to obviously women purses wallets photos of women makeup and hair accessories clothing many many of these items would quickly be linked to victims of then unsolved murders um and joel had certainly collected a lot of trophies 
There were also a lot of books about serial killers, we kind of knew that from earlier, and a lot of porn that was sadism-centric. In the garage, they found some truly horrifying things. A wheelbarrow that had, I think I read, three ounces of blood in it. Assorted tools, all coated in blood, which is a, a goddamn nightmare. And a chainsaw that had not just blood, but also human flesh on it. Did you just get nauseous? Because I did when I was reading that. Um, While the house was being searched, Joel had no problem writing up a list of his victims to the best of his recollection. It included dates, times, places, names if he could remember. Um, Because of that, thankfully, 15 of the 17 victims were identified. There isn't anything that I find super interesting about his legal proceedings or trial. However... Before the trial began, there was a suppression hearing. I'm sure you guys all know what that means, but just in case you don't, it's just a hearing where the lawyers try to argue to have certain things suppressed or excluded or thrown out um, to keep, you know, from the jury so they never hear it. Usually it's based on a loophole, sometimes based on a breach of protocol, um, whatever the case may be. So in this hearing... Joel's lawyer tried to get Joel's confession to the troopers thrown out because he tried to argue that the state troopers lacked probable cause to search the truck. Let's just all sit with that for a minute. Okay. So Joel leads them on a chase after not pulling over when they tried to pull him over for his license plate, which is not probable cause, but that's how we start, right? So he gets out of the car. But when they approach the truck after it crashed, it smells like death. Actually, like it smells like death. There was a rotting corpse three days in a hot garage in the back of that truck. Nice try, Joel's lawyer. That's going to smell real bad. Maybe ask the Noxema that Joel smeared under his nose so he could get through the drive. I, of course, wasn't there. But the smell of death, which is not a smell that you forget, is certainly enough for probable cause. Um, Needless to say, that was denied. So that was not suppressed. Um, Joel was offered a deal of 46 years to life in exchange for a guilty plea. But for some reason, he had faith in his inexperienced lawyers and was confident they would get him off if he pled insanity, which is a really hard thing to do. Um, There's so many things that you have to, like so many psychiatrists and specialists and, and things that you have to kind of get through and meet all these guidelines in order for that to happen and it's just super difficult um so joel's trial began in april of 94 he pled not guilty by reason of temporary insanity which how can you argue temporary insanity over the span of several years that doesn't really make sense but whatever the jury found him guilty he was sentenced to 25 years to life Which is weird considering his deal, quote unquote, was 46 years to life. Unless that's not accurate, but that's what I read. He had another trial for two of the murders in specific. He pled guilty uh, this time. Smart move. Um, Or not, if they're giving out better sentences than the deals. But that's fine. He received an additional two consecutive 25 years. Then had to stand trial in Queens and Brooklyn. After it was all said and done... He received a sentence of somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 years in prison. He is housed still at Clinton County Correctional Facility. Um, 
which is not somewhere I've heard of, so I'm assuming it's upstate New York, uh, Joel Rifkin has been thus far the most prolific serial killer in New York, and especially Long Island, until the Long Island serial killer, who we still don't know the identity of, um, is he still active? Are there more bodies? Some people have speculated that some of the bodies could have potentially been victims of Joel Rifkin, but I don't think I'm with that theory because he seemed pretty forthcoming about what he had done, and I feel like he would have mentioned it if, even if he thought there were any more, because he he wanted the credit for those. You know what I mean? So I mean, while well, he's a killer, a bit of a liar. In this case, I kind of feel like it's someone else completely different. Um, there's some interviews floating around out, out there, just going back to just Joel alone for a moment, and they're interesting to watch because obviously he's a monster, but everything about him just screams regular guy. He is not really creepy, not now anyway, can't speak for the person that he was presented as, you know, when he was doing all these things. But he doesn't come off as really cunning or manipulative, just kind of regular, which is weird. Um, But that's the end of that. That's Joel Rifkin, our Long Island serial killer. And I want to remind you guys to come find True Crime Time on Instagram. I think I forgot to say this last episode, but keep sending me your stories. Remember, these can be things that happened in your family, to your family, your friends, your college town, your job, anything true crime related also paranormal. We like those. Send your story via direct message to me on the True Crime Time Instagram page. That's True Crime Time, all lowercase, on Instagram. So I hope I see you soon over there. And until next time, lock your doors and windows, people.